please meet me in Romans chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 25 through 29 is where we're going to make a home uh, this morning. And as you are finding that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then Romans, first and second Corinthians, we get to first and second Corinthians, back to the left, or just type in Romans into your favorite app, your Bible app, Romans 11, 25 through 29. Uh, a couple of things as you're finding your place there. One, we're starting a, a brief series um, in September. Uh, don't worry, we'll come back to Romans. Uh, but we're starting a brief series at the beginning of September for four weeks to consider probably one of your least favorite subjects, which is rest. Uh, we're calling it pause, and it's going to be an opportunity for us to reflect on four practices of abiding in God's love. We'll be looking at the passage we actually just read over our children, John 15. And I hope it's really, really helpful for you. I know it has been for me in considering this. We actually are going to encourage you to grab a book called Keeping the Sabbath Holy by Marva Dawn. Um, And in it, she talks about these four practices of ceasing, of embracing, resting, and feasting. And so we're going to take four weeks and look at those four themes from John 15. Um, an overview is already on our website, churchinthesquare.com slash uh, pause, I believe, and you can see more about that. But that'll start September 5th. Um, so it's always good to have a heads up. Uh, today, as we look at Romans chapter 11, we'll be considering uh, something that I think Paul has in mind as he's writing his people here in this particular subsection that we have been looking at, this idea of safety and security. Safety, I think, is something that we all long for, <laughs> something that we all desire Um, I think because we're in a world like ours and in a day like ours where we feel the mental, financial, emotional, physical, relational, and even spiritual threats and stress and pressure all around us. I, I, I wonder if you, perhaps more than ever, just realize how unsafe we can be in this world. Um, many of us perhaps have been protected or unaware of different threats. You step into adulthood, you step into a new job or into a new friendship or into a pandemic, and you actually realize how vulnerable you actually are, whether you like it or not. And I think, therefore, we long for security. We long for some stability. We're looking for a sure foundation. And the good news of the passage today is that Christ is our safety, that he is our security. In him, you actually can experience what you long for. Um, In a world of violence, I think that we can actually know peace. In a world of competition, you can know contentment. How wild is that? You can actually be content. And in a world of fear, you can know love. However, one of the reasons I think safety is often pretty elusive is it doesn't come by your own volition. It doesn't come by my own uh, effort. It's not something, safety and security is not something you can secure for yourself. That's what this passage is going to teach us. See, paradoxically, security is not the fruit of control, but of surrender. Safety and security is not the fruit of control, but of surrender. That's what I'd like to talk about today. Today we're in Romans chapter 11, verse 25 through 29, and Paul is giving his readers assurance, but not in themselves. He's not encouraging them by highlighting something unique and special within themselves, he is actually encouraging them by lifting their gaze, not inward, but outward and upward. He's given them a vision of security in Christ and God himself, and we'll allow the passage to organize our time together this way. We'll look at the mystery of security or what it is, and then we'll look at the scope of security, who it's for or 
And then finally, we'll look at the certainty of security, the effect it has. So we'll look at the mystery, the scope, and the certainty. And we'll do that from Romans chapter 11, um, verses 25 and following. Here's how it reads. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with you when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. This is the word of the Lord. Let me say thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help. We need your help, and we don't even know the depths of our, our need. But even what we're aware of, we realize how desperate we are. There are things about the coming months, a new year perhaps, or the conclusion of a fourth quarter that we're in the middle of, or a relationship that we no longer have, whatever it might be, there is just, I know within my brothers and sisters and with myself, it's just clear when we look into the future, we're not enough to secure safety and peace. And so humble us. May that not cause fear to seek, and then therefore to seek control, but may that humble us that we would rest in your love. Um, I pray that for myself, and we know that your word does that. I pray that for my friends. Um, and so would you open up our eyes so that we would see and would you open up our ears so that we will hear and we pray that in Jesus name everybody agreed and said amen so Paul's letter to Rome is about justification and it's I think really important every now and then through this season of studying Romans now in our 96th installment to remind ourselves what this letter is all about and it's just that it's about justification it's a letter about how God saved human beings through Jesus Christ. In other words, he pronounces them righteous. That's justification. It's a legal term. He is saying you are no longer guilty. You are innocent. It's about salvation. All the way back in Romans chapter 11, Paul explained that it's about the gospel, which he described as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Greek. Got that idea. That salvation is for all, for all who believe. In particular, Paul is in the middle of explaining how salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and the gift of righteousness moves from a primarily Jewish project to a worldwide inclusion of non-Jewish people. This was part of the struggle happening in ancient Rome. People for the first time were exploring faith in a multi-ethnic urban environment like Rome, and they weren't sure how that all jived with the God of the Bible. And so Paul is writing them to say, this is God's plan for salvation. This is what God has been up to, the Jew first and also the Greek. Most of 9 through 11, if you remember, is written with the Jews in mind, specifically targeting their context and their consciousness. He's been helping them understand the beauty and the purpose of the inclusion of Gentiles, people that many of them grew up despising. Many of them were told were different, were other than. But about midway through chapter 11, he turns his attention toward the Gentiles. He says in verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles. So that's where I get that idea that now he's shifting to the Gentiles. He pretty much says it. 
Among many things he's instructing them, he's encouraging them to stay humble. Why? Well, he just delivered some bad news to the Jews, and they might think, sweet, they're the ones in trouble. We're good. We are now included. We are special. And he's like, not so fast. I want to make sure that you're not being arrogant toward your brothers, your Jewish brothers and sisters, because they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't see Jesus the way that you did. Why? Because it's a work of God's grace. It's not a work of your own merit. But as we've learned, What we've learned through that is that pride is antithetical to the gospel. Pride is antithetical to the way of their teaching of humility by centering us on the idea is a good place to go. Look at verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So similar to his prohibition against arrogance earlier in the chapter, Paul tells his Gentile readers what? Resist being wise in your own eyes. That's really hard. Resist being wise in your own eyes. In other words, they should not be so self-assured and secure within their own thinking, their own understanding, their own cul-de-sac of consciousness, if you will, in just the way that they think. Can you relate to that today? Do you know anyone, maybe yourself included, who is wise in their own eyes? It never goes well. When you are your own uh, judge and jury, for instance, This is a concept which flies in the face, I think, of modern thinking. Because you see, the fundamental difference between the Christian worldview and a secular or non-religious worldview is that the Christian understanding is that our greatest issue, our greatest problem resides within us, not outside of us. That our greatest issue resides within us, not outside of us. This is a fundamental difference from many of the ways many of our friends and neighbors and even we are being discipled to think on a regular basis. What's that mean? It means that the ills within my heart and within your heart are far more dangerous than whatever surrounds you. Now, I think immediately we're like, well, what about this person? What about that thing? That seems really dangerous. This is what the scriptures say. It constantly brings us back to Satan's sin and death and the things that prevail within our hearts. It's dangerous what resists or what's going on within our hearts. And one Russian novelist, you know, I dabble in a little bit of Russian literature every now and then. Usually I Google something and go, that's interesting. So it's mind separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. That means security is not merely about being protected from what's outside of us. Security must come from understanding and having protection within our hearts. Case in point, left to our own wisdom, we don't understand and are left unaware of this mystery that Paul is talking about. So what is this mystery? What's the mystery of security? Well, Jesus spoke about a mystery too. It's actually a recurring theme throughout the Bible. So if you're still in Romans, turn to the left to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 verse 25. Matthew eleven twenty five. Jesus says this, or rather Matthew says this and in leading into what Jesus says. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So Jesus is praying, and he's thanking God for hiding something from the spiritual elites of the day. 
that's interesting. God, thank you for not making them aware of truth, right? This is what Jesus is communicating to his father. He's, he's thanking God, not just for that, for, for hiding something, but he's also revealing it to a particular person or a particular group of people. Notice he says, he thanks God for revealing this mystery to little children. Then he gets more explicit. Only the son, that's Jesus, knows the father, and only the son reveals this mystery to others. And Jesus chooses little children, or really that word means babies. You've revealed this truth to babies, the least suspecting intellectuals in the group, right? We think that if anyone has understanding, it's not them. A scholar, Leon Morris, whose commentary has been really helpful for me through this series, says this about what Jesus has said. This does not mean that all the wise are lost and all babies are saved. It means that the knowledge of God does not depend on human wisdom and education. The knowledge of God does not depend on human wisdom and education. This mystery is for those than whom God chooses. Those who do not approach God with entitlement, do not approach God on their own merit, but they approach God based on their need. Can I just tell you as a parent of four, I know all of their needs. Why? Because they keep bringing it up. Here's what I need. Here's what's going on. And if they don't say it, they're showing it. You're crying all the time. You're not listening. You need rest. They constantly are approaching me, their loving-ish father, right? And their mother based on their need. And many of us approach God based on perhaps a particular kind of need, but we believe that he will meet that need based on our merit, not based on our relationship, right? So ultimately, our need is really just a disguise for our entitlement, that you should meet this need. They come to God, children do, spiritual children, not based on their strength, but their weakness. This is consistent with the Bible and the biblical usage of the theme. The mystery, then, is Jesus himself, who is the one who first came in weakness, who is the one who first came humbly, who is the one who first came like a baby. It's the gospel and various aspects of the gospel, and the mystery is revealed to those who surrender, those who are weak and spiritually at their end. This is why Jesus goes on to say famously, This is the lead-up to what he says here in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my often. It says that the only only prerequisite. And the mystery is Jesus. He is our salvation. He is our rest. And it's only when we surrender and admit our need that we find security in him. In other words, it's only when we admit that we need protection and God alone can provide that protection that he overwhelms us. Except this theme in Romans and he builds upon it. The Gentiles were viewed as the spiritually weak. The Jews as the spiritually strong. So the inclusion of the Gentiles and the exclusion of some Jews was demonstrating this mystery that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11. It's being revealed. That's the mystery. That's what it is. So who's it for? Who does the Son choose to reveal this mystery? And who are the humble? Who are the dependent ones in Paul's mind? Well, the who is actually not really a mystery. Jesus is clear about those who he chooses, who understand the mystery and the nature and the power of God. He chooses who is saved. The one whom the Son chooses, Jesus says, the one whom he chooses. And yet, it's also clear that we know something about the ones that he chooses. 
They are humble. They are weak. Salvation comes through surrender. Security comes through surrender. However, at the end of verse 25, Paul explains it this way. So if you're still in Matthew, flip back to the right, back to Romans. Romans 11, verse 25, looking at the latter half, he says, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is part of the mystery, too. Not just the nature of salvation and the nature of the gospel, but the process of salvation as well. This constantly is happening in a lot of Paul's writings, and it may be lost to us. Why does Paul say in Romans 1 to the, to the Jew first and also the Greek, why is he so concerned about who is getting in and why and where? He says that in Romans 1, he says that in here, he says that in other, other places. He says the Jews will come, and then their hearts will be hard, and Gentiles will come in, but now look at verse 26. He says, then in this way, all Israel will be saved. This can get very confusing, so let's slow down. What's going on? We know a few things about the scope of security to this point. But at first blush, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Many Jews didn't know the mystery of Jesus. This is what we've covered a lot through Romans 9 through 11. They didn't believe in Jesus. They weren't saved. God then chooses to reveal himself to the Gentiles. And many Gentiles believe in Jesus, and they were saved. But now he says all Jews will be saved. They believe in Jesus, and they will be saved too. This can be very confusing because it would seem to eradicate literally everything that he has just been teaching about the nature of the Jewish inclusion and the Jewish salvation. Paul seems to be undermining every two different types of Israel. He's been talking about ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel. He wrote back in chapter 11, For not all who descend from Israel belong to Israel. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. So when Paul says all Israel will be saved, he is saying two things about the scope of the, mis- of the mystery, and much ink has been spilt over this, I assure you. First, he is saying all salvation comes through Jesus, through this mystery. So there is one through whom salvation takes place. The process of salvation is the same for everyone. But secondly, he says there is going to be a time when a number of Jews come to faith in Jesus. That process of salvation will include many more Jews than at this point that the Gentiles even know. Remember how he said last week, or rather a number of years ago, but we looked at it last week, (laughs) when he he said to the Gentiles, don't get arrogant because the people you despise are soon going to become your brothers and sisters, right? So be very careful how you treat your enemies because the same grace that saved you from the far reaches of darkness can save anybody that maybe you despise right now. So be careful how you treat your enemies. They might soon. Scholar F.F. Bruce gives us some more clarity, though. And he says, all Israel is a recurring expression in Jewish literature where it need not mean every Jew without single exception, but Israel as a whole. In other words, though many reject him now, don't count out the people of Israel. Don't act like God has moved on from them. Don't act like he has now judged all of them and condemned all of them. He has not betrayed his people, but many will receive and believe in Christ soon. The second point becomes even clearer as we keep reading. Look at verse 26. And in this way, all of Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob, and this will be my covenant with you when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. So when it comes to the Jews, the hardening of their hearts actually benefited the Gentiles. He's like, don't hate on them. Don't, don't be frustrated. Don't, don't, don't use that against them. I actually turned that for your good. 
I actually turned that to welcome you. And many Jews, though, in that moment embraced pride. Many Gentiles embraced humility. And in God's providence, Jesus kept things hidden from many Jews, many Jewish people, for the sake of non-Jewish people that they would be included. But that doesn't mean that God has abandoned Israel. Israel will be saved, Paul says. That's the scope of security. That it is not just for one people group in the past and now a new people group and now he has abandoned those people groups and now it's for us so we don't look back and despise them. We don't despise anybody. Many Jews will soon come to faith, Paul says. And in fact, many scholars believe that is a particular moment in history when that kind of revival will happen. But it's not every single Jew and it's not every single Gentile but a collection of diverse people will be joined together by the revealed mystery of Jesus according to the will of God. We might simply say, what is Paul really getting at? He's saying that you better get really comfortable with the multi-ethnic church because he's going to save a ton of different kinds of people. So in this back and forth of Jews and Gentiles, he's saying, don't think I've saved you because of the people by my will. That means we have to contend, I think, though, with a challenging truth theologically that's really important, that not everyone will be saved, that not everyone has this eternal security. Jesus keeps things hidden from some people. Jesus chooses some and not others. Then and now, Jesus provides eternal hate this doctrine. And in fact, anywhere in the scriptures, it shows up, you're like, can I rip that out, go Thomas Jefferson style on this thing, and just go, no, I don't want to believe that. I don't, I don't want to accept that. But there's a deep security in this. This doctrine in general, particularly that Paul is saying that some are selected and some are not, might seem to be harsh to us. It seems judgmental and unkind at best and evil at worst, doesn't it? I mean, if we're really honest, why, why do we think that? Because we don't think that there's a real villain within us and we go, I would do, I would do that differently. I, I'd save everybody, right? So we have this impulse of the goodness of our own hearts and compare it to the action of God and we actually judge God. So we have to be really careful about these impulses. We should be honest about them and expose them and talk about them. Seems judgmental, seems maybe evil. Perhaps this is why as a society we are so uncomfortable with the idea that our greatest lie or the greatest issue lies within our hearts and not outside of us. It's really comfortable to look at the problem out there, isn't it? This is what we do. We blame. We can find anyone who's messed up more than us. We can find anyone. Let's talk about that. This is why whenever there's like accountability that come to us, we go, yeah, but what about this person who did it even worse? Okay, we'll talk about them in a second. What about your heart? What about my heart? If ever you want to draw attention away from yourself and towards someone else when you are being held accountable, um, be very careful. That never goes well. And there's a difference between judgment and accountability. We've been exploring this a lot too. Brothers and sisters hold one another accountable. They do not despise and judge. In other words, it's an impulse for love and for their good and for holiness not for comparison and competition and shame. See, we venerate our goodness so much that we can't even imagine that Jesus would ever punish us, that Jesus would ever punish anybody. We're not that bad. In fact, we think we're really good. Theologian and professor Rebecca McLaughlin helps us, I think, immensely understand what I think is very spiritually confusing for us. In her book, Confronting Christianity, she explains that when it comes to morality, we, ex- we ascribe to personal truth, but not objective truth. Or at least we say that. In other words, as modern-day Christians, we are tempted to believe that what we feel and think about God personally is more valuable or more potent than what His Word says and what His Word proves externally. She explains even by recounting a pretty humorous exchange between physician Neil deGrasse Tyson and Stephen Colbert, of all people. Um, 
Tyson quipped when he was being interviewed that the good thing about science is that it's true whether you believe in it or not. Now, for some of us, those are fighting words from the past couple of years, right? That seems very trying. That seems very tragic. It seems very timely. It seems very frustrating. But McLaughlin notes, here's the harder truth, that what's good about this truth is that it's not just about scientific truth. It's not just scientific truth. It's all truth that is outside of us, that is objective, that God's truth is actually supreme whether you like it or not. That's really uncomfortable. That means that these invisible inclinations that I have in my soul and in my heart, they need to be tested. They need to be tried. James says you've got to test the spirits. Is that from the Lord? Is that thought? Is that impulse? Is that godly? Is that right? I need my brothers and sisters. I need God's word. I need his Holy Spirit. I don't just go with the flow of my heart. Right. Why? Jeremiah is really clear. Your heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. That's not a real pop. Nobody tweets that today, right? None of us shellac that over a picture of a beach and go, this is what I was meditating on when I was walking, right, by the lake shore. How wicked is my heart? (laughs) But church, I think unless and until we face that reality, we'll never be safe. It's the villain we keep ignoring. It's the ill that we don't believe has a cure. It's a disease for which we don't think there's a physician in Jesus saying, here I am. What does Paul say in Romans 11? Why are Jews saved? Why are they chosen? It's not because of their preciousness, even that they are the image bearers of God. He says that they are saved because they are loved. He says that they are saved because God promised their forefathers. In other words, we are saved because of God. We are not saved because of us. This is why salvation should cause us to worship God in humility, not be arrogant towards our neighbors. We should be, every time we should be here, go, you got in too? That's wild. Because we all know this mystery. None of us should have got in. Based on our own merits. This is why pride makes no sense. Anytime we start acting like, he made a good pick. He made a good pick bringing me on the team. I don't just hit bunt singles like I knock it out of the park, right? Sorry, sports illustration, right? If If we are saved because of God, we will become who he's called us to be, people who are worshipers. We're going to get to this in Romans chapter 12. I I joyfully want to offer my body as a living sacrifice unto God when I know but for the grace of God go I. I really believe that. I really believe that if I know that he is my security. That security is not a fruit of control of me having it all together, but of surrender of going to the one who has it all together. In fact, it's that love and promise which helps us understand the final movement, the certainty of security. Or that's who it's for, so what effect does it have? See, security is found only in Jesus. This is what we've been exploring, and it should, it should produce humility in us because Jesus is the one who chose not by our own merit, but by his grace. This is surrender in practice and in faith. To become a follower of Jesus, you must surrender. To, to live as a follower of Jesus, you must surrender. This is why we say often that the difference between being mature in Christ and every other sort of dose of maturity is the exact opposite. That to be mature in almost anything, it's increased independence, right? The more I can do on my own. But to become mature in Christ means the more and more I realize I cannot do on my own. The more and more I need God's people, the more and more I need his word, the more and more I need his spirit, the more and more I need to surrender. 
Look at verse 29. This is where Paul lands us. How ought this give us assurance and certainty in a constantly changing world? What God gives you, church, he never takes away. In fact, in the Greek manuscript, the word irrevocable is first. In other words, in that kind of juxtaposition, it has preeminence in meaning. In other words, Paul is talking a little bit like Yoda. He's saying irrevocable are the gifts and calling of God. What are those gifts? Well, Paul has already laid it out earlier in chapter 9. He says they are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, glory, covenants, law, worship, promises, belong the patriarchs, and from them, Jesus Christ. These are all the blessings of salvation. And what Paul is saying, if God gave them to you, he's never taking them back. They're irrevocable. He'll never go back on his word. Why? Because you and I are good investments. Because we're good stewards of those gifts? No. Even when you and I are bad stewards of those gifts, they are sure. Why? Because they were given to you out of love. They were given to you because God said he would give them to you. See, if God's love and his promise are the things that make you secure, then no matter what you do with that gift, he is going to give you security. In other words, the certainty of security is found in the character of God. Our security is found in God and not in ourselves. Can I get an amen? That's really good news because I'm going to wake up tomorrow and not believe it. I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm not going to live as if this is true. And that doesn't change the truth. How good is it that by the grace of God, we have been beneficiaries of a truth that is unshakable? That no matter what you do, it is a sure foundation. This is why the psalmist says, some trust in chariots and princes, but we trust in the word of God. Why? Because it's not going anywhere. It's not going anywhere. This is why we surrender to God. And that's why it produces security. Paradoxically, it's not control, it's surrender. Yet let's be honest, daily I think we seek security through a lot of other pathways, don't we? I think we seek surrender through money. There are few problems that we face that we don't think a little bit more money would get me through this better. We seek security through control. If I just had more information, if I just had more power at work, we would really figure this out. If I had more power in this relationship to make them feel and behave a certain way. We seek security through people-pleasing. If I could just get everybody to love me. Church, I confess to you. I just want all of you to love me. And a lot of my security lies in the disposition of my church family and how they feel and think about me and not in the promises of God. We seek security through manipulation through saying things that are only half-truths to try to get people to do things that we think will make our tomorrow, our future, our job, our families better. We seek security through blame. If people aren't blaming me and they're blaming somebody else, at least then it's not on me. At least I don't be, I'm not exposed. We seek security through reputation. long as people think nice, good things about me, everything's going to be okay. We seek security through sex. If I feel something physically, experience something with someone else, then everything is going to be okay. We seek security through image. As long as I got that, we don't do filters anymore, I don't think, but as long as when people look at a picture that I've posted and they think this thing about me, I'm good. We seek security through tribal identity if they know that I'm with these kinds of people and not those. We seek security 
through avoiding discomfort. We seek security through the exact right house, the exact right job, the exact right school, neighborhood, spouse, children. We try to equalize this mug as best we possibly can because we think all those things are going to provide security. Aren't you tired of that? I am. (laughs) Trying to please everybody is exhausting. I can't rest. If you are not secure, you'll never rest. This is one of the ways to know that we're actually trusting in the security of God, is we actually rest. The only time you truly rest is when you know you're totally secure, right? You got to keep hustling if you're not secure. You got to keep covering your vulnerabilities if you don't believe that you're secure. And many of these things are actually really good gifts of God, but we're asking them to do something for us they are ill-equipped to provide. You see, the problem with all of these lies in the pathway to achieve security. They are not irrevocable. They change and so do we. We are not irrevocable. We cannot find safety on our own because our greatest threat is within us, not outside of us. So not only so, but each pathway is a form of idolatry because we worship whatever we believe protects us. Whatever you trust will protect you. It's a way of venerating that thing. We build our lives upon them and we worship them. We might even say that at its core, sin is the act of stepping away from the security of God and trusting in fleeting expressions of security offered by someone else or something else. This is why our sin ultimately gives us a picture of hell, the full expression of sin, an existence separated from God. It's an existence without God's security. So what's our hope? How can we be certain and secure? How does this point us to Jesus? Well, when Jesus hung on the cross, he said a number of things. And one of the things that he said about what he was experiencing is he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, Jesus, in other words, is without divine protection and security. He's without the relationship that he enjoyed for eternity past with his Father. On the cross, all the blessings and gifts of knowing the Father were suddenly out of reach. But not because Jesus sinned, not because he didn't trust the Father, but because he surrendered to him. Not my will, but yours be done is what he says leading to it. He, he, he does all of this because we have sinned and we have fallen short. He takes all of this on the cross. Jesus endures the full weight of a life removed from the security of God so that you and I would never have to carry that weight. So that you and I would never know the full weight of a life without the certainty of his security. He traded places with us. See, when we experience the allure of trusting the security of money or control or blame or any of those things, when you will experience that this week, the invitation of the Scriptures is to see through these feeble promises, to see beyond them and to understand there is a God who has already secured for you everything that will calm your heart and will protect you because in Christ are what? A new creation. The old is gone, the new has come, and now he's given you a new heart and a new spirit. So may we trust the safety that God provides us. Let's pray. Father, you are good and generous and kind. Yet we often just don't trust that you truly protect us. You truly keep us and secure us that you're faithful to the end, that you're faithful through the ages, that you're faithful tomorrow. So I pray for my sisters, I pray for my brothers. Would you cause us not to seek control in hopes that it will produce security? 
but help us to surrender to you, knowing that you are the only one who transforms us from the inside out to be worshipers of the one true God who keeps us safe, who keeps us secure, that no matter what suffering, pain, discomfort befall us in this life, you are a God who comforts us now and always. So may we trust in that ever-present help that we have in time of trouble, the love of Christ, the mystery of God revealed. In Jesus' name, amen.